You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight, we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble on the drum. Beat out old trouble on the drum. Beat out old trouble on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Kick him out the door. Kick him out the door. Well, 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 this is Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. My name's Joseph Toscano. Kelly Whitworth, the world's, well, one of the world's more well-known producers is with us. How art thou? I'm really well. I just had a really nice cake. Did you? Mm. Mm, I watched you eat it. There was some old man watching me from across the table. Exactly. It's called food pornography. Yes. I was watching every piece of cake (laughs) go into your little mouth. (laughs) Now, we've got a a really fascinating guest today. Certainly. And uh, we'll give her time to catch her breath (laughs) because she has been running. So while she catches her breath and gets organised... How's the new house? I told you not to talk about my <laughs> private life on live radio. You don't have a private life. <laughs> You've got a Facebook page. You know what it's That's like. That's true, yeah. I mean, very much enjoying um, beach life. It's lovely, nice, fresh Ocean air. Oh, my God. That's pathetic. (laughs) Fresh ocean air. I cannot... It's kind of good for you. Really? Yeah, I think it is. I wonder why your complexion looked a bit better and all those those pimples have disappeared. I've never had pimples. Where are you going? It's radio. We can lie. All right? I need you to face the guest. Yeah, I know, but I'm I'm giving the guest time to get organised. But when you're ready, you need to turn around and not make that... Noise with the microphone. Yes. <laughs> ah! It's got brewer's droop, I think, <laughs> this microphone. Susan. Yay. Oh, it hasn't, hasn't going so I'm a little bit late. No, you're never late, Sue Bolton. You, you can be as late as you like. You're a star. You know why? Because I've known you for a very, very long time. I think we've been, you know, been on the same streets for a long, long time. Yes, I think we have. <laughs> Lots of activists. <laughs> now, Sue, what year were you born? 
What year was I born? Well, um, this is this is wasn't about you. Expecting yeah. that opening question, well, that's hope. for sure. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, you got nothing. No to hide. secret. Uh, late fifties. Late fifties. Oh no, nineteen fifty nine. Fifty nine. Where were you born? Uh, Charleville Base Hospital. Ah, good old Charleville. And your parents? Have you heard of it? I was actually born in the Royal Brisbane Hospital, okay. darling, so I have heard about it. <laughs> well, don't, uh, don't hold it against me, the fact that I grew up in Western Queensland. Not at all, but most, most of the activists in Australia who've kind of gone the long term have come from out of Queensland, you realise. Remember, ah. rem, remember the old saying, nothing radicalises like a pee in the park? Uh, yes. Well, Kev Carmody certainly does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. That's one. I don't know lots of others, but um, yeah. Kev Carmody is certainly one. Yeah. Although a lot of people down south, as Queenslanders used to call people south of the border, wanted to put a barbed wire fence to stop <laughs> Queenslanders coming down. <laughs> well, I came down for my late wife. We came down in late 1976 and we had uh, T-shirts, Queensland Refugees, which mm. we used to wear because it was quite difficult. How did you get them... How did you get them printed back in the day? There wasn't any like quick copy or no, office no, works no. Hand or anything. printed, hand oh, printed, oh, hippie screen hand printed, printed. Screen exactly. Printed. Oh, how yeah. cool! How cool you were! No, we weren't yeah. cool. We we're just desperate. <laughs> <laughs> and people, uh, if you look at the graffiti in mm. the um, public toilets at Ballina, which mm. is where the bus stops on the way from, or used to stop on the way from Brisbane to Sydney. Mm. There were all it was all of this graffiti escaped from Queensland because that was the Bielke Pedersen days. That's right. And the left in Queensland thought we were the only left in Australia who faced repression, <laughs> although that's not exactly true. <laughs> but um, well, but there was certainly was heavy repression in Queensland. Uh, look, I, I remember I in was, the eighties, I, I was uh, standing next to poor old Senator George Georges in a demonstration, <laughs> and the police came. They, they were totally corrupt. They came straight for him. Battened, battened him you know, into a heap and chucked him in the back of the divvy van. That's what it was like. Mm. And he was a senator yeah. for Queensland. That's how they treated him. Now, are your parents still alive? No. Right. What was, what was your childhood like? Childhood, well, just growing up in the bush and mm. then going away to school and then... Going um, away where you were a border, were you? Yeah, was a border. Yeah. Well, your parents were on a grazing property or a farm. Or? Uh, the, my father used to manage a sheep and cattle station, and um, yeah, and it was sort of certainly a very racist environment in Western Queensland. Um, but my father was probably surprisingly non-racist for a white man of his generation doesn't mean he was no. zero racism like soft racism was definitely there but they like given the attitudes in the bush were really extreme racism mostly towards aboriginal people because there wasn't much obvious non-white migration so it was racism was mostly directed at aboriginal people mm, was Sherbrooke far from where you were Charleville? Uh, yeah so where i grew up so i didn't grow up at Charleville. i grew up in <laughs> Tambo then Quilpie, mm -hmm. so both of those places are roughly halfway between the um, between the coast and the Northern Territory border. So Sherberg is sort of like Miles a suburb away. of Brisbane, <laughs> yes. Uh, in terms of people who live out there, and yeah. nowadays I notice people say Tambo is the outback. I never thought of it as outback, but um, no. 
But it was, you know, the class differences. Like, sure, there was a lot of racism, but also I think class divisions are much more obvious in the bush than in the city because... um, because in the city, in big cities especially, um, poor people rarely come go into the areas of super rich people. So most people wouldn't see where Kerry Packer and James Packer and Rupert Murdoch and those sort of people live, Malcolm Turnbull and those sort of people. Um, whereas in the bush, you can see exactly who's wealthy and who's poor um, and certainly the graziers dress like it. I mean, there's some mm. towns I'm aware of, um, like in uh, Quilpie, where we later lived, where there was um, the golf club, I think, for the graziers the, and shopkeepers, the, a pub for white workers and a pub for blacks. Like, yeah. it was sort of that mm. sort of segregation yeah, in yeah. the bush. Did you have any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I did, yeah. Are they still around? Uh, my sister's still around, mm, yeah, but no. I'm the only left-winger in the family. Oh, look, uh, we'll, we'll forgive you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so did you do School of the Air? No, I missed that. So my mother, I did four years of primary correspondence and then I went to, um, I boarded at a hostel run by the Country Women's Association in Tambo um, so well, now that's interesting, isn't it? Because most of them are religious-based in those days. Yeah, I don't know if all the hostels were, but mm. I mean, I, d- I can't speak from great ex- I know there was a hostel in mm. Charleville. I don't know who ran that. But um, I'd say the matron of the hostel um, was chosen for ability to be cruel to young children. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was a prerequisite, okay? Yes. You just look at all the historical records. Yes. If you weren't cruel to young children, there's no point applying for the job. But, um, yeah, so, I, I mean, I'm glad I did two years of primary correspondence before going to boarding school because I got a chance to experience a normal school because I do not consider private schools as being normal schools. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and so I, you know, while I wasn't really political then um, and I came from a conservative background, I really hated the elitism and it was elite. And that, and I really worries me the fact that so many people now send their kids to private schools. Exactly. And where you get an ideological education, not just mm. a, you know, cl- um, not just a um, l- learning about arithmetic and writing kind of religious. It's very ideological, and I think you know, mm. especially worries me when I see people who are supposing supposedly progressive sending their kids That's to right. private schools. Yeah, well, I can assure you, my kids didn't go to private schools, <laughs> yeah. and uh, not one of them. And look, what really annoys me about private schools, not just the fact that we we support them through their taxes, but the fact that they give out scholarships and inverted commas to promising public public school kids and they rob rob us of a whole generation of people that, you know, and and, and they inculcate them with their ideology, as you said. It's, It's just sickening sickening and we pay for it but getting back to you because this is about you it's not about ideology all right it's about you not about ideology (laughs) because what we want what we like to do is we like to see how where people come from and how Mm. they develop it's that type of program Mm. i hope Mm. 
Kelly told you. I just said, come and have a chat and a coffee. And Sue was like, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm not used to talking about myself. <laughs> well, that's what this is about. Because, you know, I mean, people have got images, you know, mm. images, you know, the, the activist. But the activist... Mm also has a heart and a soul and a background and a culture and mm. and, and, and where the, where people come from. So where did you go to high school? So I did so I did four years of primary correspondence with my mum teaching me. Mm. Then I did two years at the Tambo State School and the hostel. Then I went to boarding school right. in year seven. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that's why I'm so pleased I got to go to a local state school rather than going straight from correspondence school to private school because I think I just had an opportunity to, you know, be at school with ordinary kids mm. and I think that was really, really important. So what was boarding high school like, private school, for you? This was in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, like, you know, I wouldn't because I wasn't really a a super political person. No, no, but how did it influence but I think, yeah. But I think um, probably one thing which influenced me before I went to boarding school, which had an influence on how I reacted to boarding school, is that while my parents were not left-wing at all, they were not elitist um, and, you know, they didn't – my father – you know, cause my mum didn't work, but my father didn't earn a big income. In fact, I think my sister earned more as a nurse than he did. And so while, um, you know, they were conservative, they were not elitist. And so I think that's that's what had the impact on me when I was at, um, at boarding school. So that I remember there was a, you know, I did start to become more aware and also more aware of things at boarding school because it rubbed up against my non-elitist background. And um, and so seeing, you know, things, yeah, just seeing the elitism and snobbery amongst not all of the students because obviously the students who break away from that background, but the, just a high degree of elitism and snobbery um, and then in, including the fact that there are some people who, you know, ca- some of my fellow students who came from big towns or, you know, reasonable-sized cities or even some who came from Brisbane who were boarding. They li- their parents lived in Brisbane and they boarded at a private school. That, that was sort of bizarre to me. <laughs> and seeing a maths teacher who was probably labour, possibly left Labor, but, you know, Labor Party. This is in the late 70s. And and seeing some of the students who came from wealthy backgrounds, these were day students, they weren't boarders, um, I think there was a bit of a difference between the boarders and the day students because mm. not, you know, a lot more of the day students, more elite backgrounds. And just attacking this teacher because he dared sort of raise equity kind of issues, issues yeah, yeah. and mm. you know and I remember when now the headmistress um the principal was um you know very prim and proper used to tell us all about table manage manners and mm. blah 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 when we had dinner at boarding do, do, school do you know how to fold those napkins properly for yeah. those dinner parties you no asked? I don't, you don't? <laughs> but 
But when Whitlam got sacked, now mm. I was not really political, but when Whitlam got sacked, I bumped into the, you know, happened to walk past the headmistress who was practically skipping down the path, yippee, yippee, Whitlam's gone, blah, blah, blah. So you sort of get the picture mm. and then it was, you know, um, yeah, and just seeing the attitude of a lot of students who'd obviously picked it up from their family background of just the snobbery towards other people, including kids who came from um, from state schools. So why didn't it turn you? Because obviously you weren't in the majority. The people who felt like you was mm. a small minority in that private school. Why do you think it didn't affect you? Because, see, I see your father more as a worker. He was a manager. He wasn't landed gentry. He wasn't a squatter. He wasn't an owner. Um, no. Although the interesting thing is people like my father is because um, they always put their name in the ballot to win a block of land. <laughs> and <laughs> well, they never did. <laughs> no, it's like Tats Lotto. They, ne- they it's never did. Right. They never did. But um, there's a layer of workers in the bush, like on stations, yeah. who, like, there was... And there was always a bit of a difference between station hands, who were usually members of the Australian Workers' Union, like when it was still some level of unionisation, and jackaroos who saw their path as being to become managers and hopefully owners if they can win a block of land. And um, even though jackaroos and station hands, I couldn't tell the difference between what they did. They all seemed to do the same. All seemed to do the same thing. And so... Yeah, so my I, ju- I just think maybe the fact that I didn't come from an elitist background. My father had an interest in the world um, and he did follow um, to the best of his ability, you know, what was happening in Australia and in the world. And, what, and he was not overly ideological. I'm sure he would have been on the wrong side of the Shearer strikes, but um, he was surprisingly non-racist and non-sexist. So he believed that girls could do anything if they, you know, they had um, used strict, you know, levers to, um, you know, increase yep. their strength. Um, mm. So he didn't have, you know, he thought, you know, women were much better horse riders than men or much better b- motorbike riders than men because they're more attentive, et cetera, et cetera. He just had those sort of ideas that women can do most things obviously he, uh, and so he um i just think that in my background plus the anti-elitism i think just really did um protect me from some of the injustices and elitism and snobbery that i saw mm. in the private school i didn't really meet anyone who was that i was aware of was super oppressive uh, super progressive mm. um I did see two girls from a family which was like a Labor Party family and, you know, it was as if they were, you know, communists with horns and tails and yes, devils and yes, that yes. kind of thing. They were just, they came from Labor voting backgrounds, back, back. you know. But I think it was just really that. But it did mean that once I left school, I didn't want anything to do with the school. So, so, so I didn't keep up with any... any. No reunions? No, I've never been to a reunion. Mm. I just, like, put boarding school behind oh, me and mean, tried to it. escape it as fast as I could right. and uh, got uh, into other parts of life. Okay, so you left high school and what did you do? So I left high school and um, is in my last year of high school when my mum died 
and then I uh, came to went to Toowoomba to study higher education at a um, College of Advanced That's Education. Right. It's called a university now. Um, so it wasn't one of the more elite institutions. But I became – that's when I started to develop an interest in activism. I would not have called myself a socialist. I didn't really know anything about socialism. I n- hadn't met anyone who called themselves a socialist, although I actually think I did working campaigns with socialists who were not open about that being socialists. But I was – so that was late 70s. And there was a huge, massive anti-uranium movement right through Queensland, which also, you know, stretched to Toowoomba. Um, and also... That's, the, that's uh, almost extraordinary. To, to me, Toowoomba's always been the bastion of religious conservatism. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the other element I came up against when I was in Toowoomba. Um, Toowoomba, for people who don't know it, it's west of Brisbane, not that far west, but it's the top of the top of the range and um and the other thing um yeah so um yeah so anyway so I went and studied um psychology but I as I was yeah the other movement that um that I got involved in in Toowoomba as well as the anti-uranium movement was um the movement um, to fight against Joby Elke Peterson's ban on street marches. And while that wasn't, it, you know, obviously small scale compared to Brisbane, we had our own protests in, um, in Toowoomba as well. In fact, I remember being questioned by some cops who asked me for my name and then for my address, and I was Sue Bolton living in Bolton Street in Toowoomba, <laughs> <laughs> and they thought I was bullshitting. <laughs> and, and you should have said, I own the street, you know. <laughs> What's the problem, boys? But, um, <laughs> and, but by the end of my course, I became very disenchanted with psychology. Why? 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 Well, I think because um, we had one lecturer for most of our subjects, especially in the first year, first couple of years, and he had a genetic view, biological determinist view of human behaviour, and we only ever got to do multiple choice exams, (laughs) so he never had to do essays where you had to think, research and think about things, and I mean there was some essays you had to do, but not a lot, and I became very friendly with some people in the course who were much more... um, you know, quite critical of, you know, this lecture of what we're being taught, but also had a very progressive and left-wing outlook on life. They weren't activists, mm-hmm. but they were very progressive people. And so, and actually Kev Carmody, he wasn't in my course, but he was at the, at the on that campus, campus. as well. So mm-hmm. I got to know Kev then. Um, I didn't know as a musician, but as a fellow student on campus who was active in some of the same things I was active in. And... So by the end of my course, I was starting to think, why counsel somebody and send them straight back into the world that's caused their problems? So I got, I guess I got very, a bit caught into the anti-psychiatry movement. And probably, you know, since then, since I've met many more, thousands more people since then, I, you know, I do realise now <laughs> that there is a role there for, is a role, for I you. Mental, <laughs> mental health support and, yeah, and yeah, psychology right. and so forth. But, um, but I was 
Yeah, I think I became I mean, I mean, disenchanted. You came, you, yeah, you came to the conclusion there are, there are no individual solutions to social issues and mm. political issues. It's not an individual solution. It's got to be a collective solution. You've got to look mm. at this. You came to that conclusion, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's yeah. sort of why I left and then I went fruit picking. And uh, then that, I, that's a big change from psychology to fruit picking. What fruits were you picking? Um, grapes. Yeah. And then... Um, Peaches like stone fruit oh, around Shepparton. Peace, peace work. Oh, Shepparton. How did you get to? How did you get from Toowoomba to Shepparton? No, What's going went, on here? Well, first of all, <laughs> I went to Wakery in South Australia to do grape picking. Then right. I went to Shepparton to do fruit picking. Then I went to Tassie to do apple picking. picking. But of course, there were no apple orchards left, or hardly any, <laughs> so I didn't get a chance to pick any apples. Then yeah. I sort of got stuck there without well, what money you, for a what bit. Did, what did your parents think of their daughter? All this money on. Boarding school, education, and now she's fruit picking. Um, I don't know. I don't know if what they. <laughs> well, my mum was dead by then. Yeah. Um, but my dad, I, I don't. You know, I mean, he was sort of. You know, though he was supportive enough, or at least yeah, didn't raise dad, any yeah. objections, <laughs> really, as that I remember. Uh-huh. Um, but then when I came back to Brisbane, I couldn't force myself to go and do the honours year in psychology, which would enable you to practice as a psychologist, I just couldn't face doing that. Mm. And so then I got, um, did a range of jobs, mostly, well, initially, you know, cleaning and gardening, like house cleaning and gardening. And then uh, I got a job in Australia Post um, until I got razor ganged out of the public service by Fraser's razor gang. And that was around the time I started to get a bit interested in left-wing politics and came across the socialist movement. And then... Now, now let's go back. You came across the socialist movement. In Brisbane. In Brisbane. So, you know... What do you mean by the socialist movement in Brisbane? What was going on? Well, probably, so when I, this is not long after I came Mm -hmm. back, I moved into a share house with um, uh, some people, um, someone who was a friend of someone who was involved in CISLAC, the um, Central American Solidarity Movement. This is around the time of the huge uprising in El Salvador and also after the Nicaraguan Revolution. And so I um, just got a bit interested. I hadn't known anything about the revolutionary movement in Latin America before that, so just started to get a bit interested. Mm -hmm. And then not long after that, I came in contact with um, both the Socialist Workers' Party and also the International Socialists, um, especially... uh, you know, during the when I was working in the Australia Post, I got ac- involved in a campaign to oppose um, Fraser's cuts and Razor Gang in the public service, mm-hmm. and then um, then I got Razor Ganged out, and then I got a job in a metal factory in um, Rockley, or actually, yeah, Rockley, yep. um, called Whitco, made security locks and mm-hmm. window winders. They're still around. And I, I worked on the die-casting <laughs> die machine. Um, uh, and can, the, I ask, can I ask you the million-dollar question? Were it? you a, a unionist at that stage? Were you involved in the union or were Well... When well, I did. I got. I mean, I didn't come from a union. No, no, I understand that. Yeah. But I. Um, but certainly, when I was 
in the public service, I joined the union. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, might not have joined it first off, I don't think, but I did join the union. And then that's how I got involved in the campaign against Fraser's cuts. And then, you know, by the time I um, got the job in the metal factory, which was at the tail end of the 35-hour week campaign, um, I was, you know, immediately joined the union. I had a union consciousness. And it was a it was an interesting job because it was mostly production work, um, mostly women workforce and male um, male workers were the maintenance workers and the trades workers. But the interesting thing is the delegate was a woman delegate from production because there was a certain level of maybe trades thinking that production workers don't have as many brain cells um, to organise themselves. But it was interesting, the, um, the woman delegate who was a member of Socialist Workers' Party, I mean, I was not a member at that point, um, Helen Jones was a um, young woman. Uh, I think she might have been 18 years old or 19 years old. She was a punk. She rode a motorbike. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and she became the delegate. And much to the surprise of the male trades Shut workers. Um, <laughs> and, but also while she really stood out as a young punk, <laughs> um, punk rocker, all of the, oh, she was a really wonderful person. She actually played a fantastic role on that job. Um, in particular, when there was um, a general strike um, in support of the railway workers, um, when BLK Peterson sacked 3,000 railway workers and there was a spontaneous general strike um, and all of those workers got their jobs back and Helen played a fantastic role at leading workers off that job. job. Mm. And so, which is quite amazing for a young worker um, to be, as a delegate, um, to be able to do that yeah. and mm. have that, mm. um, that confidence. That impact and the confidence, yeah. We know you love listening to 3CR. But we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. VCR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. So how long did you last at this factory? I wasn't there long. Um, I ended up getting sacked. Um, Um, What did you do, sir? Come (laughs) on. Um... 
actually, I can't exactly remember now. <laughs> but were, I was there for discourteous. I or? was there for a couple of years, yeah. and then um, and yeah, I can't actually remember. I mean, I was you know I came from the die casting section of the factory where you had um, you know in some way. I mean, every part of the factory had onerous conditions. But in some ways, we had sort of more onerous conditions by having a super short lunch break. Break, right. Um, and, and you had like a long, like we started earlier than the rest of the factory. So we had a very long time between breaks in the morning. And actually, I think it was because I was still fairly young at that time. <laughs> I think actually I was um, used to break up the morning by having two toilet breaks and I think ah, right. I think I was reading a book in the, <laughs> in the toilet, toilet and the supervisor started following me into the, the toilet, toilet and yeah. timing me each, each yeah, time. Yeah, that was a but anyway, they yeah. weren't, uh, Helen wasn't able to save my job so no. I lost it and then went bus driving. Right. And how long did that last bus driving? For, probably for about five or six years. And you're still in Queensland? Yes, yeah, still in Brisbane. Yeah, that yeah. Was, so, so in Brisbane it was a Brisbane um, city council that ran the buses. Yeah. And so I was there during the Sequeb dispute, which is a massive dispute when Bielke-Peterson sacked um, over a thousand lines workers who worked for the electricity um, uh, electricity board. Mm. And um, so I was involved in heavily involved in that campaign, and also seeing the sellout and comparing. 1982, when we had a spontaneous general strike, which saved the jobs of the railway workers, and 1985, when Bob Hawke and Simon Crean, like Bob Hawke was Prime Minister by then, 1982 was before Bob Hawke became Prime Minister. Once Bob Hawke became Prime Minister and we had that industrial dispute and Labor was in power, the ACTU officials, Bill Kelty, Simon Crean... Um, and some others who, um, mm, you know, a veritable rogue, rogues yeah, gallery. Yeah, and they basically mm. really worked super hard to try and stop any workers going on strike and force workers who are on strike to go back to work. Yeah. So they, ba- we lost that dispute, and so mm. I was um, just new to the industry of bus driving at that particular point in time. But it was, you know, I actually probably, that was one of my best jobs of my life because as a bus driver compared to public service, you're all on the same level. (laughs) You're not um, in the public service, everyone's supervising someone else unless you're at the bottom of the heap. As a bus driver, um, you, you know, you don't have any extra levels other than people who became black caps or or inspectors. But also the interesting thing... I found on the, on that particular job was that while women were a minority, so I wasn't one of the very first women on the job in Brisbane. That would have been hard, I'm sure. Um, I remember, um, you know, the union, I mean, this is before my time, but the union only had a very narrow vote to allow women on the job. I think the union was more progressive down here. It had been a great union in the 1960s in Brisbane and there was a great really popular Communist Party leader. That was before my time. But then the union leader who inherited that job was not much chop, was a bureaucrat left in name Mm. but not in practice. And um, 
but there were about 6% women on the job by the time I came on the job. And it was just interesting how women and men working together doing the same job start to break down the barriers. So uh, it might have been, probably would have been different for the very first women on the job, but by the time you had 6%, which is not a lot, but it's still, you know, a decent, it's not yeah. like one or two, mm. it meant that men, male workers on the job didn't see you just as a woman driver. They saw you as, you know, so-and-so with such-and-such a personality they yeah. might have liked or disliked. Mm. It wasn't wasn't like category woman. Um, and there, so it was sort of, it was really interesting how you could see how, like some of the blokes I worked with, they didn't always have great language in terms of non-sexist language. But I'd swear a lot of those blokes were much better in how they interacted with women and treating women on a level than some blokes I've met on campus who had all the snaggy, sensitive, new age guide. Now, that's an old term. It's yes, not used yeah, anymore. Snag, but yeah. um, but it But it was like, you know, there's some men on campus who had all the correct language but could be really sleazy or, or not mm. treat women on the level but some of the blokes I drove with on the buses who didn't have great language but mm. treated women equally. And that was really interesting. And then the other interesting thing when I was a bus driver is there was a group of totally open lesbians on the job. There were no openly gay men on the job, um, but there was a group of open lesbians. And just seeing how people, you know, people lost their you know most people I'm sure there are probably some people who had homophobia but people just start to get to know people and the yeah, boundaries right. break down yeah, well you know what they say you know when you look at somebody in the eyes it's very hard to hate mm. hate them you know so what made you come to this godforsaken city well by the time uh, it was possibly when I no, I think it was when I was working the factory, I joined the Socialist Workers' Party. Right. And, you know, I think I was attracted by the fact the Socialist Workers' Party was very involved in um, blue-collar jobs and unions. And a lot of the left groups that came out of the 60s were not involved in blue-collar work. Often they were more likely to be public servants or um, academia and so I got involved in the Socialist Workers Party, and nowadays people, a lot, you know, a number of people who came from that background, such as me, are part of Socialist Alliance. Um, although there've been some changes <clears throat> along the way. Um, so I, w- so I came down to um, Sydney, where I did um, a, a Marxist school for three months, and then I moved to Canberra for. Um, to be a branch organiser of the Canberra branch of Socialist Workers right. Party. What year was that? That would have been, you know, probably around late 1987. Right. And then you moved to Melbourne after Canberra or? Yeah, I did. And But just going back to the Canberra experience, I mean, that was interesting because when I went to Canberra, my first job, well, my first job was driving trucks in Canberra. And then driving trucks for Ianelli's, which is a fruit and veggie business. But, you know, some people in the transport industry felt thought that it was a cover for other <laughs> illegal activities. Um, I didn't see that when I was there. Um, but 
that was interesting because I hadn't really driven trucks as a job before. I'd really only um, driven buses. So it was a different experience altogether. Um, and then I, after that job, I got a job as a cleaner driver in Queanbeyan Hospital. And starting off with those two jobs was a very different experience of Canberra Queanbeyan area because it was really both. I lived in Queanbeyan initially and my um, first jobs were in Queanbeyan. Um, it gives you a very different experience of Canberra to being in the public service, especially the higher level, higher paid jobs because a lot of university graduates, including a lot of people who might have come from a left-wing background on campus, went straight over the top of the base grade clerks to graduate positions, which mean they didn't necessarily got a feel for what it was like on the ground as a really low-paid base grade clerk. And really the the experiences of blue-collar worker, which I'd had before, and experiences of the lower-level workers in the public service is probably a bit similar um, and elements of the working condition a bit similar. Um, And so I think as a blue-collar worker, you saw a different side of Canberra to what a lot of people in Canberra see who work for the public service, especially the higher Mm. levels Mm. of the public service. The upstairs, downstairs Mm. division. One Mm. of my experiences when I was in the public service was um, they decided they wanted to rearrange the furniture or something or other. And they um, they asked all the blokes. They didn't ask me because I was a woman. Um, they asked all the blokes, including blokes who'd always been public servants who had no idea of how to lift furniture safely and so forth. And I complained to the manager who and gave the instructions. Then I rang the union, which was CPSU, which is you know probably one of the more hopeless unions. And the organiser said, oh, I'm not sure if, you know, maybe, you know, I'm not sure if you're not allowed to do that or not. And I said, my old union, the bus drivers, taught us really clearly that if it's not your job description, you're not covered for compo if you have a workplace accident. So then I rang the Transport Workers Union. I said, we're doing you out of a job at the moment. And they said, don't worry, we'll fix that. You know, they called the bosses and Mm. then the order came down the line and (laughs) then suddenly um, we weren't moving furniture Furniture. anymore. (laughs) Um, Now, now, Sue, I'm going to to interrupt. I'm going to make make an executive decision. Okay, already? I don't think we're going to fit your life in an hour. (laughs) So we're going to... Skip that? No, 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 I'm not going to skip it. We're going to do what we do with interesting interviewees. We don't do this often, Sue. We're going to bring you back in a few months because I don't think we can compress all your life in an hour. How do you feel about that? It's okay by me. All right. So I thought you could easily compress it. <laughs> no, no, no. You've only just arrived. You're in Canberra. You haven't even arrived in Melbourne yet. And it's the mid-80s. It's now 2024. Yeah. Obviously, you've done plenty of things which you'd, you know, mm. you'd like to talk about. Mm. So we'll get Kelly to re-invite you in a few hours. But we've still got 15 minutes mm. to chat. So what happens after Canberra? So after Canberra, I moved to Melbourne in 1993. So it was just after the really big anti-Kennet protests. And so... So um, were, you, were you involved in those protests or just after? I was involved in the last couple. Mm. And, you know, that was after Trades Hall at the time had killed off the protest movement against Kennet. 
Um, so I missed the first few really big, exciting, massive protests, protests. Mm. but I sort of heard all about them from comrades. So I. Um, so did you come down as an organizer, or you just I came, came for down a ch- as an organizer, but to go on full time for the party? Right. Uh, which was a very different experience because when I was. So in, was this the first time you f- full time? Yeah, organizer? first time was full time organizer. So what is it? What, what does it? What is the role of a full time organizer in the party? Well, it means that. I mean, a bit like when you um, take a union organiser off the job to be a union organiser, it means um, it means you allocating resources to um, to really um, do a lot to yeah take responsibility to do a lot more um, in the political movement and and for the party and. And it is hard as a full-time uh, worker doing that, being a, you know, I remember in Canberra when I was a branch organiser and I was working at the hospital, so I was in a blue-collar job and I was always sneaking around corners looking for the supervisor's phone to call about things because sometimes there are protests in the middle of the day which mm. I could, might or might, well, I couldn't get to right. until I got mm. in the public service where you have access to flex time. But um, that was pre-mobile phones and pre-internet and all the rest of it. And so, um, yeah, so it is It is really difficult when you are still a full-time worker and a full-time, and so, also an organiser. So, so when, when, when you came to Melbourne, were you working and an organiser or just a full-time organiser? No, just organ- a full-time organiser. Right. So how, yeah. would, how would you structure it, your day? Well, um, well, it depended on, <laughs> depended no, no, I'm on just what saying. was going on. Yeah, so, yeah. But, I mean, you know, I mean, you worked at that stage. The resistance centre was um, in Anthony Street, just mm. near the markets. Yeah. And, um, and also at that stage, like um, pre-internet, um, you know, copy. Well, by then we had Green Left Weekly. Um, prior to that, we had a newspaper called Direct Action. So I remember in the early 90s, before pre-internet and pre-email, you still had to um, rush to type up articles on a Saturday to catch the last plane to Sydney mm. to be laid out with yeah. um, mm. very old-fashioned uh, technology. Electricity. Let- Yes, 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 all of that. Um, so, you know, it was all old-fashioned yes. technology, which, yeah. you know, no one know how to use anymore. Mm. And so um, so I was writing for the paper. Um, we were starting to get involved in the student movement. There was, um, or like the party, and um, there were various comrades involved in various industrial struggles. There was, um, you know, still some things happening around the Andy Kennett campaign mm. and then various other struggles, you know, through the 90s. Um, there were still some free education campaigns happening against fees for universities um, until the Labor Party invented the HEC system, which is a way of getting the Labor students to drop the campaign against university fees. And then the f- fights around voluntary student unionism against then later on in the 90s around logging in native forests and nuclear testing in the Pacific and so a range ha, of things. How would you choose uh, issues that you felt that you... Um, is it because you felt you could influence them or you just felt they were important? Somewhat? 
Well, we'd have process. discussions mm. within the a party branch, mm. and because you've got limited resources, so you know you would have to, you know, the issues which you would love to, you know, um, do more work around, but you might only be able to support through publicising the campaign through our newspaper, Green Left Weekly, at that time, and publicising their events and turning yep. up to support their events. And then there'd be other campaigns that you um, would make a political assessment that you need to really prioritise with resources where you really allocate a lot of resources to help a campaign um, come into fruition, keep going. Um, And it might be because um, it is a really massive issue that's mobilising people at that particular point in time or maybe it might be a more of a strategic kind of issue. And probably I would say in terms of the latter, um, that probably one of the campaigns that probably wasn't mobilising heaps of people was um, solidarity with uh, with East Timor yes. and solidarity with the pro-democracy movement in Indonesia. Mm. Like we had, um, were involved in that for many years, including when the protests were quite small. Um, but around the um, protests against um, logging of native forests and and the anti-nuclear campaigns, um, we were, you know, these were huge demonstrations. And then later in the 90s, when Pauline Hanson started spruiking, we were thinking, and this got, harked back to the early days of resistance, which was a youth, socialist youth organisation linked with socialist Workers' Party, um, we decided to initiate a high school walkout um, against racism, against Pauline Hanson. And that was huge, absolutely huge. Now, at that point in time when Hanson was elected in 1996, there weren't the other really far-right politicians elected. She was the only one. So she rallied all the far-right to her um, banner. Um, and at that stage, she was seen by the mainstream right, like John Howard, as being a maverick. So they sort of tried to shut her down. Um, but we had massive rallies, massive high school walkouts against Pauline Hanson, both when she turned up on her big mm. speaking tours mm. and, then, um, and then the high school walkouts that we led. Mm. So... At this stage, you're with the Socialist Workers' Party yeah. as an organiser. Right. And it changed its name. Well, actually, no, it changed its name in 1989. Right. I think it was 1989 from memory, mm. um, to Democratic Socialist Party. Right. And the reason for that was, I mean, the politics didn't change, but we had been involved, Socialist Workers' Party had been involved in a number of left unity projects in the 1980s um, and they sort of fell away in the early 90s but there was first of all we'd you know we'd worked with the nuclear disarmament party when bob hawk sold out on uranium mining Um, and then the communist party in the mid 80s started to become critical of the prices and incomes accord which was a way of shackling the labor party government shackled unions and so there started to be interest in a new left party because thousands and thousands of people had left the Labor Party with 
you know, because they're pissed off with yep. all the um, sellouts of Labor. Mm. And so it looked like there was a possibility of a new left party, which would have been broader than any of the smaller groups that came from Trotsky's backgrounds, like our party did. Mm-hmm. And But then that um, fell away when the Communist Party started to support the accord again. And then, the, but then by then, um, perestroika was happening in the Soviet Union, and the Socialist Party, which was pro Moscow party, um, came from a Stalinist background, was interested in potential left unity. They'd been inv- they'd been involved in the fight against the Price right. and Incomes Accord, mm. so we started having some unity discussions, uh, even going so far as drafting a joint potential joint platform for a new party. Mm. But then the Tiananmen Square massacre happened in 1989, I think it was 1989. That's right. And the Socialist Party supported the Chinese government and we opposed. In fact, we had a comrade at Tiananmen Square at the time who who was writing a lot of copy about what was happening there and then did a speaking tour for us when he arrived back in Australia. Um, this was definitely not that we did not want um, people to think that that's what's represented socialism, that horrific mm, massacre. Mm. So as much as you can tell in a name, yes. we changed their name to Democratic Socialist Party. Um, but the politics, you know, it was still a revolutionary party where the politics didn't change. It was just to try and mm. indicate that you, we thought that socialism was a democratic system. system right. And the last, we've got another th- th- three or four minutes. When you say you're part of a revolutionary party, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that, I don't mean like a little coup d'etat. No, no, I understand. Guns, That's why I'm asking. But, you know, what, but, I mean, I'm but not, a lot of people yeah. do think of, think of revolution as being like that. By revolution, I mean something where a huge majority of the working class and oppressed people um, start to realise that um, the system, you know, can't be reformed and you need a new system and are entered towards socialist ideas. Whether or not they articulate that they're socialist or not, um, they start looking towards socialist solutions. And that's really what I mean by a revolution. Um, It's not really like you know, a little coup d'etat, you can't impose socialism. It has to be something that comes from the people um, with the party involved in that whole huge mass movement. Um, Yeah, so that's that's what I mean. Right. And and what's socialism? What's socialism? Well, um... Is that you know, your last question of the interview, is it? Well, no, well, well, we've got another hour in a few months' time. We've only got to the 1990s. So I want to, I, I want Sue to define these for our listeners because these are words we've used over and over again. Mm. And, I mean, we know what it is. Yeah, yeah but, I think... But a lot of people, there's a lot of confusion mm. amongst people. Yeah, I think the terminology. there is a lot of confusion and mm. also... Because of the whole experience of Stalinism, a lot of people think of socialism as being a bureaucratic system or a dictatorship or, um, and, you know, also right-wing politicians, um, so, you know, when they're talking about, you know, horrific things that have happened, 
They talk about, you know, communism, you know, in terms of the Soviet Union and Hitler. Well, actually, Hitler was a representative of capitalism. Not, uh, they never say capitalism. Uh, but, but in terms of socialism, it means... It really, um, I don't have much time to go into it, so it's no, a bit no, no, hard no, to no, do it in short words. Exactly, but, yeah. But really, I think, and, and the movement probably in most advanced capitalist countries tends to use the term socialist rather than communist because the word communism is much more in main, the mainstream has developed the connotation of dictatorship because of the... Um, because of Stalin, the Stalin yeah. um, and so forth. And and Maoism is a version of that, been a slightly different way. So really it means it's really a transitional phase and it's really a transitional phase where you start to take more and more things out of the market so that things are distributed according to human need. And it needs to be... Um, to develop a, a self-managed kind of system and how that shapes itself will be, will be a bit dependent on the historical and cultural experiences of working class and oppressed people in a particular right. country. Mm-hmm. So it won't necessarily be absolutely identical, identical. From, mm. from place to place and there will be all sorts of experimental... Um, experimental Good. Examples, and I would say between so well, I might not have time to. Now, what we'll do? Go into what, this. What, what, what we'll do, sir? <laughs> I was about to make some more points. <laughs> no, no, we've got to, we've got to look, look. As I said before, I'd like you to come back for another. When are you going to come back? In a few months. Few time. months. That's too. That's too far in the future. Are no, you, are you able not. to come no, back soon? Well, you can talk. Well, to, talk to the talk to. My people, all right. Get your people to talk to my people, and we'll work out a, a day that that suits both of well, us. All right. Kelly can su- suggest yeah. a few dates, and um, after, after I'm the happy program. to. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because what we'll do is we, you know, we've got a number of other guests. I'm not sure what Kelly's got lined up. You know, she's that type of producer. Doesn't tell me what goes on because that's the way we work the program. I, yeah. I don't know the guests usually until they walk in. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it, a discovery. It's, it's a, a discovery. voyage of discovery. Well, it's more than a voyage of discovery. It means they've got no preconceptions. They've got a few preconceptions as far as you, because <laughs> I've seen you around for ages but it's been a pleasure talking to you as i said i'm not here to make any points mm. i'm here basically to explore your your journey in life what you want what you're doing and uh, it'll be a pleasure to speak to you for another hour thank you very much for coming in today no worries thanks thanks for inviting me Global Intifada, bringing you current affairs through revolutionary and protest music from around the world. Every Thursday afternoon from 5 till 6 on 3CR. Because music is our bomb. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.